As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone. I'm Fern from Evidence of a Crime, a true crime podcast. I use extensive research to respectfully tell the stories of missing people, unsolved, cold cases, murder cases, and more from around the world. I've covered well-known cases such as Jacob Wetterling, an 11-year-old boy who disappeared in the USA, but mostly cover lesser-known cases such as the disappearance of Ruth Wilson, the murder of Carl Bridgewater, and the double murder of Monica and Dominique Frome. You can listen to Evidence of a Crime on all podcast platforms, or search Evidence of a Crime to find me on social media. This podcast involves topics such as violence, sex, and mental illness. If these topics are likely to disturb you or those around you, please reconsider. The privacy and confidentiality of everyone discussed have been carefully protected, and demographics and other details have been changed whenever possible. If you ever feel unsafe or suicidal, please call your local crisis center or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800 273-8255. You matter. Hey, this is Kate. I wasn't planning on recording today. It's Christmas Eve. There's a lot to do. The whole family interaction, blah, blah, wrap presents, blah, blah, you know, the things. But I had an idea about what I wanted to talk about here, and I think it's an important message. So here I am. I think a lot of people would say that it doesn't make any sense for me to be releasing an episode that talks significantly about depression, anxiety, ADHD, and even more significantly, suicide on Christmas Eve you know, Christmas Day, depending on what time zone you're in. Why would I do such a thing? Part of the answer is that, at least by urban legend, there are more suicides around the holidays. Under normal conditions, that's not actually true. 
Because a lot of us are surrounded by family at the holidays. We sort of put on the party face, the happy smile, even if we're not feeling it. And we hang in there. We might feel dark, even in the face of Christmas lights. But we push through. Under normal conditions, there's actually more suicides in the spring when everybody else looks like they're feeling better and you're still not. And everybody gets this sort of bump of physical energy and activity level. And sometimes you get people who are suddenly able to act on the thoughts that lay dormant through the winter. I don't know what's going to happen this year with the pandemic and lockdowns and an increase in isolation and a decrease in access to services. I worry. And rather than pretend everything's great or rather than go silent, I wanted to come down and put this episode together because I think it's got a core of hope that might not immediately be evident. So I'll say it again at the end, but I'm going to say it right now, because this episode is not for everybody. It is about suicide, and it is the holidays, and it's heavy, and it's dark. And so if you got to hit pause now and hit stop and mark play and move on, no guilt. I get it. But you need to know that it's normal to be struggling right now. A lot of people are. You need to know that there are ways to get through it anyway. I'm talking this time with a guy named Mike Henneberger, who has some things to say about that, about how to get through and how to decide whether to wake up in the morning and whether hope is enough. I don't know if it's enough. As you know, my father died by suicide last year, and hope either wasn't a factor in his life or it wasn't enough. Nothing was enough to keep him safe. And so I'm putting together this episode today. That was my dad's voice that you heard as the disclaimer. And let me tell you, that was hard. That's hard to hear him when I know that I'm not going to hear him again. But I used it because he still matters. He matters to me every day. I woke up this morning out of a nightmare that he knocked on my door and said good morning. And that wouldn't be a nightmare under other circumstances, but it's a nightmare for me because I know it'll never happen. So if you are struggling, if you are alone right now, if you're in a really dark place, please reach out. If that means sending me an email or a text, I'm open to that. I cannot be your therapist. I cannot be your your counselor or psychologist. But I can say, hey, you can reach out. Join my Facebook group. It's this amazing, wacky, irreverent, caring group of people who will welcome you with open arms, whether you post every day or whether you just lurk. That's enough. Just know more than anything, and now especially, that you matter. 
and that there are ways to get through and find reasons to stay alive, even if you don't have the perfect relationship or the perfect white picket fence, even if hope is not a thing that works for you. Are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss. My name is Mike Henneberger. I am the author of Rock Bottom at the Renaissance, an emo kid's journey through falling in and out of love in and with New York City. And I am a video producer and director and all around storyteller. Agreed. I, and so I've had the chance to read the book. Cool. And, you know, it, it, we're not like our, our lives aren't parallel in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like I married young and stayed that way. I'm stuck now. Like <laughs> we have four kids. And so nice. what are you going to do? But uh, no, I don't recommend that at all. Like it's, it's <laughs> way too many kids, but just sort of also emo punk, you know, I'm cool. just enough older that I grunge alt rock, yeah. but, but that, that f- your book is a lot about music and a lot about, the sort of sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle. Yeah, but n- not in the normal, fun way that that's portrayed, I think. Well, uh, and I guess maybe I forget that there is a fun way to portray it because I have, I've always seen oh, yeah. the dark side of it. Yeah, I think it's normally in when it is portrayed in, you know, art, it's normally glorified um, in like, you know, movies and books and stuff like that. Um, or at least romanticized. Um, you know, you don't see the dark side of it a lot in in mainstream storytelling, I don't think. Well, I mean, fair like I don't engage in a whole ton of mainstream Oh yeah. I mean media. Yeah, so that's really but yeah. And and as a psychologist, like psychologists don't see happy people. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> so there's always that. But so but talk about that. Like why would you write a book about the dark stuff? Um, I mean, I didn't really decide to write this book. It it kind of just came out of me in the way that, that it's it's explained in the book. Um, it takes place over a weekend that I spent in a hotel in Times Square in New York City. Um and I hadn't been writing um, I, I spent a lot of my life working in music journalism, starting out in print media and 
you know, as media changed, I started working in digital media and started uh, working in video production. And then I, you know, my music journalism turned into video production for like Billboard magazine and Spin and Rolling Stone. Um, And so that's always been a big part of my life. But um, there was a there was a point in there where the only writing I was doing was the writing for work. Um, And I've always been a storyteller, whether it was through writing lyrics in my bands in the past or um, screenplays or whatever. And so I did have a goal to write when I went into this hotel for the weekend. And um, I didn't know what I was going to write. I didn't plan on writing this. Um, I just planned on writing. And as the story goes in the book, um, you know, chapter one starts with me leaving work to go to this hotel. And so basically what happened, you know, and I went into this hotel with a bottle of Johnny Walker and a bottle of Adderall and a bottle of Xanax and a bottle of Ambien and took those whenever I felt like taking them. And, um, yeah, whatever came out of me that weekend came out of me that weekend, which was more than half of the book. Um, and then after that weekend, I put it aside for a while because of how dark that weekend got, I didn't want to revisit it. Um, the drug abuse and alcohol abuse and depression and anxiety that takes place in that book was not normal for me. Um, I mean, the depression and anxiety to an extent was normal, but the drug abuse definitely was not something I did a lot or really to that extent in the book ever, really. Um, I never really abused drugs, which in, in the book, it's straight up abuse. No, I mean, I'm, I would not deny that at all, but I've had major depressive disorder for, I mean, I've been diagnosed with it for the 10 years now at the point of the book, it had been about two. Um, and I needed those medications to work for me. You know, I, um, I have ADD and I need my Adderall to work for me. I have anxiety disorder and I need my Xanax to work for me. I was taking Ambien for every night for like nine years because I could not sleep without it. Um, so I needed those things to work for me. So I never really abused them before, um, to the extent in the book, um, or really any extent, except maybe a couple times before. So I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, you know, I talk a lot about it in the book, how I've, I had um, messed with pills in the past before I was, you know, taking them for what I needed them for um, and had been irresponsible and could have killed myself um, through that and just didn't really care if I had. Um, and so I think I was just still in that state, you know, um, as far as like writing this book, it, I wanted to finish it. And so maybe a, a, a couple, like a year and a half, two years later, I went back to it to finish it. Um, and I was still dealing with that depression and I was still in that state of mind. So I was able to finish it without having to dive that deep into pushing it out like I did the first when I started it. Um, And then it just sat on a shelf for years because I didn't want people knowing that side of me Um, until one day in probably like 2016, I read it and it didn't even feel like it was me. 
anymore. I felt like I was reading a novel about somebody else. And it made me realize that I had, I had been progressing in my mental health. And uh, when I read it, I read it as objectively as I could have. And I felt like just a person suffering from major depressive disorder and anxiety disorder, reading this book that was helping me see how bad it could be and feel better that I was not that anymore. And so it made me feel like I should release it. So maybe other people who are dealing with that might see that, that they don't, that there's another side of it that you can get past it, you know? And that's why it's, it exists in the world now. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's very vulnerable and it's very forthright. Yeah. I mean, in, in ways that New York kind of is, I think, you yeah. know, that I, I grew up in upstate New York and, okay. but I am aware that the city is not upstate, yeah. you know, and yeah. th- so I've, I've come to learn that. Yeah. That, that, that there is that sort of vulnerability side i think to a lot of new yorkers and a, a lot of especially the post 9-11 new york the the feeling in the city and that feeling i think people are kind of dealing with aftershocks of it now especially on on lockdown yeah of, of trauma and there's this forthrightness and directness and in your faceness that the city collectively copes with i think yeah yeah, I mean, for me, um, it comes from um, like the music that I've listened to, and just kind of, kind of as as dedicated to music as I've been my whole life. Because I mean, I'm from Texas, and I've been in New York for um, eight and a half years now. But when I wrote this book, it like this book covers like the first three years of my time in New York. Um, and so I was still fairly new to it. Um, I mean, it, I was still very new to it to fairly new to it throughout the, um, time in the book. And so for me, it comes from really just listening to music and seeing at a very early in life. Um, cause I started playing in bands when I was 14 and I had started doing that and I was a lead singer in bands because, that was the only way that's how I learned to express myself. Um, Whatever I was feeling, the way that it came out was in lyrics to these songs that I was writing. Um, And so I think that I have that personally because of the music that I've listened to and because of what I've made music mean to me in life. Um, I feel like it, it just captures everything. Like, I I don't know anything else that can, you know, explain the way that I feel or the way that people feel in my understanding. And so I think I just try to do that with whatever I write. I try to, I try to, in my writing, I want people to get the feelings that I get from the things that move me, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, and so here's one of the things that, that wrecked me a little bit about, reading your book my father died last year by suicide Mm. and he did so by in his case going to las vegas and checking into a hotel for a weekend and right up until his last journal entry he's not entirely sure what's going to happen that night he knows he's going to try it wow but he, he 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 
it's pretty clear in that journal that he doesn't know for sure if it's going to work or if he's going to just wake up the next day with a splitting headache. Yeah. And, and that desperation sort of feeling and that it wasn't that it's like, it's obviously he didn't care anymore whether he lived or died, but he wanted to. He wanted to die or he wanted to live. He wanted to care. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, and, and and he couldn't seem to care. He couldn't seem to find that. And, um, and I think that, happened right up until the end yeah wow wow sorry to hear that um and and yeah that's very similar to kind of where I was and and when I talk about in the book about when I was in the army it's much more similar to where I was then um because I didn't have a way out you know when you're in the army you're in the army um and that just makes all that stuff much harder because you know there's no easy way out. Um, and so I let, I let myself off the hook back then. And I do it over and over in the book where I say, um, I've never been suicidal. I've never wanted to kill myself, but I've come to realize 10 years later, the more I've talked about this book that I was suicidal because not caring if you live and doing stuff like I did with pills um, and booze and, you know, other drugs, um, that could have killed me and me very well knowing it could have killed me and doing it anyway, I feel like is being suicidal. Like it's just me, you know, kind of pussing out by not taking control of it and hoping that just happens accidentally, you know, because then you can't blame me that I purposely did it. Um, cause it was an accident. Um, but yeah, no, that's exactly where I was, um, at that point. And it's, it's scary to look back at it and I'm grateful that I am still here, but there were many times and I wrote about at least three of them in the book where it's amazing that I'm still here. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you're describing is what in the field, when I say field, I I worked as a forensic psychologist, but I also spent a lot of time working as a crisis clinician. So the person that you would talk to in the emergency room, if you show up with suicidal, homicidal thoughts, um, sometimes substance abuse, depending on the state that you're in, like literal, yeah, you know, Massachusetts versus New Hampshire, not mental state that you're in, um, psychotic break, things like that. And I helped figure out where you go next and so in that field we call that passive suicidality of you'd be okay with dying yeah, you you yeah. wouldn't necessarily pick up the phone and call for help if you thought you were overdosing but you're not taking so much that it would be a clear yeah suicide on the corner yeah. yeah and exactly and in that that's super common and i think people tend to sort of brush it off as like wow i just I went on a bender. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I never, I never played it off like that in, in, in during those times. I mean, there's a, there's a time in the book where I write about how my brother and I got in this huge fight and it, you know, over some kind of business thing that he screwed me over on. And I was partying with a bunch of friends when I ran a comedy club and So I could disguise it as partying, you know, I was doing cocaine and I was drinking 
and I was popping pills. Um, and I read in the book about how I was hiding it from all of them. The real reason of what was happening. I had this phone call with my brother. I didn't, and it hit me right then at the party, but I didn't tell any of them. And I just went back to it. Meanwhile, I'm taking all these pills and stuff and nobody knows. And I went to bed and I woke up 15 hours later and I woke up to a dry erase board on my wall where I had written, if I die, it's my brother's fault. And I don't remember writing that. It did not look like my handwriting. Um, it looked like I'd written it with the wrong hand. It was scary to me. And I like in those situations where that were real, like really got me. Um, and I knew the motives behind it. I, I never played it off. I knew exactly what, what was going through my head as far as like, you almost killed yourself. Not, you know, if I went on a bender, I went on a bender. Or if I partied with my friends, I partied with my friends. But in those situations, I was always aware of, you know, afterwards, I was always aware and I never played it off. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's a hard, it, it is a hard sell sometimes to, to, to explain to people that like, yeah, I was suicidal yesterday, but today I got up and went to work. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's scary. It's still scary to me, even though I feel like I'm, I'm the, at like, the best spot I've ever been in, in my mental health in the last few years, you know, I've felt pretty good. Um, but there have been moments where my depression still sneaks up on me and knocks me down in bed and I cry, you know, for half an hour or whatever. Um, or I've had like huge breakdowns in front of my wife cause something got to me. Um, that's the scary thing about it is that you can't control it and it never goes away. And so, yeah, it's hard for people to understand that, I guess, but I, I don't know. It's um, I think what, what helps is, I mean, it's an active fight for me. And I think that's, that's the truth period. I think it has to be an active fight forever for the rest of your, your life. It's like, having diabetes or something, you know, you have to actively <laughs> take care of it. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know, you know, once somebody commits suicide, you can't ask them like, what happened right before? Like, did you let your guard down? Did you stop actively fighting it at that moment? Which I wish we could. Um, but uh, cause yeah, I feel like if I keep, you know, taking my medication and if I keep talking to my therapist and if I keep, you know, meditating. And if I keep, you know, trying to achieve my goals and if I keep exercising and, you know, trying to sleep better, then it'll be harder for that to happen. And it has been harder for that to happen. So I hope that that's why. Um, but then like, you never know, you know, you see, you see people who you think have it all together and who are just as aware of their mental health situation as I am and can one day be talking about it like I'm talking about it right now. And then the next day can be dead. So I've, I've no, I have no understanding. Um, but that's, that's why I just try to be as aware of it as possible and as active um, in taking care of it as possible. I mean, I think that's the, the important part is that that feeling of having found some success and 
knowing that it's possible, knowing that you, you know, if you have a sense of control, you can hold on to it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, well, like, I, I think it's helpful to be aware of how little control you have over it. Um, how, I, I, I mean, this is just for me, but I mean, I don't live in fear of it, but I think there's a healthy amount of fear you could have of it. If you know how bad it can be, and I mean, that can be suicide. So, but even less than that, it could be debilitating depression or, um, you know, you can ruin relationships. Um, you know, there are all these stages of how bad it can be. And if you're aware of that, then it should make you, and again, I mean, I can only speak for myself here, but I think I, I'm pretty conscious of it every day. You know, there's no like, oh, I'm, I'm better today. I'm, I'm better now and I can be less worried about it. I'm never less worried about it. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not like living in fear and kind of, it's not like um, distracting me, but I'm always very conscious of where I've been and yeah it's pretty much always on my always on my mind of how like everything I do is kind of to to keep the progress I've made in my mental health and in my life because of that progress in my mental health so yeah it's a pretty it's pretty um top of mind for me I and I don't know like it's a hard line to what you know with my dad was in therapy and he was on on meds yeah um although I believed strongly that he was misdiagnosed Mm. which I think is especially for his situation um I think he had bipolar but he Mm. was he was diagnosed as having depression and anxiety and also ADHD Um, yeah I don't think he had ADHD um, I think that he had difficulty focusing because of unresolved, you know, untreated depression and, and manic episodes more than yeah. more than ADHD. But I don't think he ever saw anybody for a full diagnostic evaluation. Yeah. And um, the problem, the, the danger in if you have bipolar, you want mood mood regulators right that yeah. sort of flatten the, the the peaks and valleys of your moods and sort of just mood stabilizers keep yeah. everything closer together so that your baseline flattens with with depression you want something that raises your mood like the whole thing just takes the yeah. whole graph and shifts shifts it vertically right so if you have bipolar disorder but you're medicated for depression what that can do is you you can still have like the real dark feelings, but often depression can kind of save your life because you don't have the energy to go act on the dark thoughts that you're having. Yeah. But then you get, you know, you get into a manic episode and now suddenly you have the energy, but you still have the dark thoughts and your moods all over the place and you end up acting on it. And I, and I think for my, for my father, he was in therapy and he was on meds almost as a, I think he wanted to be able to say, see, it didn't work for me. Yeah. See, I knew that I was sicker than that. Or I was, I was just too permanently fucked up. I, you know, see, I told you so. Yeah. You know, there's an anger to it rather than a sort of giving, giving over to the process. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's definitely it it. I don't know what it took for me to get it to care about getting it right, um, because for a long time, you know, I I had tried therapist talk therapy and didn't find I I had so much trouble finding a therapist that worked for me and that just made me feel like it didn't that talk therapy didn't work period until I stopped trying that for a long time and I went through so many different antidepressants that didn't work for me and um you know for a while I was you know I've I've taken Adderall for a long time um and I just accepted that like I'll take Adderall and kind of get through the day off this little speed bump. I or the speed hit I get in the morning and then, you know, life is just life. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't, I eventually found, cause I'm, I go to the VA once a month and that's where I was talking to therapists. And then I, I eventually just wound up with one um, who's very good. And he's been my therapist for the last two years, a little over two years. Um, and he really cares about what's going on with me. Um, and he's, yeah, he's, um, been really invested in, you know, getting me on the right meds, the right doses and stuff. And, and yeah, I mean, that's helped so much, you know? Um, but I, but like I said, I've always been, I mean, in the last five years, I've been open to it, you know, because I, I, I don't know what, triggered me to get my shit together but something did i mean i i mean i I met my wife six years ago but uh um, that helped total coincidence with the timing yeah (laughs) um um no but like i i don't want i don't want to credit that because i don't want people to think that like you need something like that like if you don't find a partner then you got nothing to live for you know and i know that that's not there's no wrong reason yeah to, um, to work to toward mental health, whether it's a partner or a pet or a house plant, yeah. like literally whatever. If you have some reason to get up in the morning, that's good enough. Well, and for me, like, and like I say in the book, you know, I, I, I jokingly refer to it as just like a writer's ego that I feel like people need to hear what I have to say. Um, and I've always known that I've had, you know, when I was playing in bands, I was a good songwriter. Um, when I was doing music journalism, I was a good journalist. And, you know, people always told me that they loved reading what I wrote and stuff. So like, I know, I know what I'm good at, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm the best at anything, but I don't like waste, like I, I learn what I'm good at and I get better at those things because I'm capable of them. I'm not out trying to play pro sports, you know, because <laughs> I know what I'm good at. And what I'm capable of, um, and so for me, I think it's it's much more what what my life has always been about is trying to accomplish these goals that I've had. Because when I played in my bands, I was like I started out playing at 14 years old. I went on my first tour when I was 17 years old, and I booked that tour. I managed my band, and that was my first hit of you can do anything you want to do if you do if you put your mind to it. Um, and if you work for it, um, cause people from my hometown don't go on national tours in their bands that they started independently, you know? Um, and I managed to pull that off. And so I've always known 
that I'm capable of achieving these things, these great things in my mind, by my standards. And so that's really what's kept me alive. And like I said in the book, you know, I call it the writer's ego, but really it's me knowing how much potential I have and refusing to give up without trying every, with every ounce to accomplish, to um, reach that potential. Um, so that's really what it was for me. Um, you know, I think meeting my wife probably gave me a clearer head to, and made me want to be, want to achieve those things. You know, when I was single, it, it was so easy for me to just like accomplish small things and just drift through. But hey, it's cliche as it is, I guess, you know, she, she made me want to be a better person. She made me want to really reach that potential. Um, and so I think that's, that's kind of what's been driving me. And, and that's made me focus more on, you know, getting my mental health, keeping it in check, um, you know, meditating and exercising. And uh, it's exhausting even talking about the, the work it is, you know. It is hard work. It is. And I mean, you, you, you touched on something that, that I tell people often uh, about you're not best friends with the first kid you sit next to in kindergarten all the time you know we yeah. don't click with everybody there are people that you just eh, about or people you actively dislike so you know finding your people that get you and that you get yeah. that's special and it takes work and we seem to understand that when it comes to making friends and finding a, a partner but we don't seem to get that that applies to therapy too oh yeah no i know and 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 that's that's such a hard thing too because like as much as i love my therapist and he's done wonders for me um i only get to see him once a month because it's through the va um and he has a private practice but is just you know already full there so i can't see him and i would like to see somebody weekly because i've i know how helpful it is but it's so daunting to me to try to go find that you know because like, I'm also the kind of person who, you know, just doesn't want to tell somebody they're not the right fit, you know, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> especially like in a, in a therapy situation where I feel like it could easily be something where I would feel like they're judging me for thinking they're not the right fit. Like I'm not giving it a good enough try or something, but also it's something I have to pay for. So I, I I don't know how many times I can like try a therapist to to decide whether or not they're right for me. Right. Well, that's um, I mean, you know I, yeah, always, I don't know how to I do always that. suggest people you know give it a couple of sessions because some people warm up at a different rate than others. Yeah. So give it give it a couple, but but after two or three, there's sort of two options. Is the one option is that you go to them and you say, "This isn't clicking." for me and my time is valuable and your time is valuable. So let's, can you help me find somebody else? Yeah. And a good therapist will already know it and will say yes and we'll help you. And a bad therapist is a bad therapist. You don't want to be seeing them anyway. So that's, yeah. You know, it's so it's like, yeah. you know, and having done like, I'm not a good therapist. Like, I want to be clear, like, I'm, I'm an excellent assessor. 
I, I did forensic assessment is, is my jam and I did well in crisis assessment. Um, therapy, you, you need a patience that I don't possess. Oh yeah. Like, you know, because with a therapist, you need somebody who's, who's open and forthright with you, but not so much that you, yeah, don't you can't come give back. them the answers. Well, yeah, that, that as well. You, you know, it's a gentle sort of leading. And yeah. also they can't be so direct that you're like, all right, screw you, you know, I'm not coming back next week. And I had that happen where I've done, you know, it, when I, especially doing crisis assessments, you're on such a deadline. You've got, I got four hours, maybe, maybe max. And that, that includes an hour to talk to you and three hours to find a bed, if that's what's going to happen. And then yeah. I got to move on to the next patient because there's other people waiting in the emergency room. And so if I catch you, in a lie or you know you're obviously being disingenuous in some way i would call you on it to be like look if you're going to bullshit me i'm just going to move on to the next patient and i'll come back you know if you want or i can just write down patient refuses to answer the questions we don't need to waste each other's time and i at least three or four times over the years that i did that work i had people be like nobody has ever talked to me like that would <laughs> you be my therapist and i'd be like you'd hate it <laughs> like yeah. you like it because it's different here but is in a therapy situation you need me to crawl inside your head and figure out how you think and then yeah. crawl out and offer suggestions that work based on what i've learned about you but you have to come you know like therapy shouldn't be a a never-ending lifestyle yeah. So much as, you know, it's like, it's like going to the gym. Like it's okay to keep going to sort of top up, but yeah. you also <clears throat> have to be able to, you're, you're learning skills. Yeah. There's no point to keep going if you're, yeah. I mean, yeah. Once you hit, once you hit a certain point there, you and your therapist should look at each other and agree like, yeah, you know, we're good. We're, let's, yeah. Let's let's. I, I don't like the word terminate because that's a little intense. But that's what it's called. This is let let's terminate. Let's let's discharge. Let's end. And it, you know, for me, I I tend to get a little like I chomp at the bit for like the answer's right there, you know. Yeah. And you can't do that, you know. It just yeah. doesn't. It's it's not how a good therapist functions. And I'm self aware enough to know that I would end up like biting my own tongue right off at times waiting for somebody to reach the realization they need to reach and i you know i think it doesn't help that one of my first ever clients was when i was an intern i inherited from a previous therapist Mm -hmm. who had allowed this woman to stay in therapy much too long so so that she sits with me and her first statement is well what i want to solve is this feeling of guilt that I have over all of the privilege in my life. And I'm like, okay, we're not going to solve that, <laughs> you know, in yeah. the next eight weeks. And I'm given eight weeks and she's like, Oh no, no, I know how to work the system to get more than eight weeks. And I was like, Oh, we're done. Like we're no way. Yeah, no, I've definitely gone in with that kind of attitude before where I'm, I'm happy to be an open book just to speed the process up. Um, but I know that's not how it works, you know, um, and I I have gotten to where I've gotten to because of the slow process of incorporating 
the tools and the guidance that I've received, you know, there was no, there was no answer to it. Um, there was no quick fix. It was the time that passed while doing the right things. And that's, yeah, that's how I got to feeling, you know, feeling a better on a daily basis, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, that's the hardest thing for me, you know, I would, I would say it to people, you know, both in crisis and in prison, which are often the same thing um, to say to somebody like, look, I can, I can help you figure out what's going to happen over the next 24 to 72 hours, depending on the situation here. But the reality is therapy is a long, slow process Uh that you didn't get to this level of pain overnight and you're not going to get out overnight. And so you just need to know that no matter what I do here, you're still going to feel like shit tomorrow. And the day after it's a slow, and and that's the worst thing to say to somebody like you're going to have to keep hurting. Yeah. And I mean, of course now where I'm at now, it's easy to say this, but you know, in those moments, definitely not easy to accept, but just like any therapy, you know, physical therapy doesn't happen overnight either. And you're in a lot of pain for a long time and it hurts to work on, to do the work is literally like actually painful. And so I don't see why this should be any different. You know, Mm -hmm. now I can say that, of course, you know, when you're in the worst of it, that's not easy to accept. Absolutely. Well, and that's, and I always felt bad. I always felt bad, but I always also felt like it was sort of my moral obligation to be honest with somebody and be like, look, you know, because I would have people ask, like, can they start me on an IV of Paxil or Prozac? (laughs) And I'd be like, that's like, I could give you the explanation for why that's not going to work. But the bottom line is no, like, that's not how the drug works. That's not how the brain works that whether you had an IV of it or whether you had a, a pill of it, nothing will make this medication work within the next six weeks. And six weeks is a long time to yeah. walk in suffering. And all I can offer is to say the sooner you can start the better. Yeah. And that's just, it's a heavy, it's a heavy load to carry. Um, another thing that, you know, you, you bring up in the book a couple of times in, in different from different angles is the importance of relationships and the, you know, and I agree that it is not necessary to be in a, you know, romantic or committed partnership to have mental health, but that certainly throws you on the, you know, on the roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, like it's in the book at that point in my life, I was, really putting that on a pedestal um uh, getting into uh not getting into a relationship but finding like quote unquote love i mean Um, you literally capitalize it yeah the girl yeah um yeah because that's that's yeah i've romanticized this idea and and it's so clear to me now you know over the last couple of years since I decided to put the book out, it was so clear to me that it was my mental health issues that made me view the world that way. You know, um, it almost seems ridiculous and embarrassing now. I'm not embarrassed by it, but it seems so silly 
now to look back at, and I say like, I say I refer to myself in the book as that character because it's so far from who I am now. Um, it's so sometimes silly to look at that character in the book and think that he's so obsessed with this thing that's not that big of a deal. Um, and in fact, like, <laughs> I, I feel stupid because I, 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 I want people to like, you know, read it and get their, get their view of it. Um, but I'm, I'm still coming to realizations about the book. Um, Cause I, I still have to read it over and over fine. Like I'm, I've been editing the audiobook and editing promo materials for the audiobook, So I'm listening to it over and over. And it's so obvious, like looking at it from the outside the guy in the book is talking about all these important relationships to him that he obsessed over and that almost, you know, that like drove him crazy because they didn't work out. But then there was another one. So it's like that last one didn't even really matter that much because there was another one. But then that other one, if that doesn't work out, he goes crazy. But then there's another one. So like, what is wrong with you, man? Like, they're obviously not that important if you live through one and get to the next one, you know? Um, but it's, I don't know. I kind of, I love that this book exists because I can, I can look at it now and see how um, kind of stupid I was, but it didn't, that's the thing about it is that it didn't seem stupid at the, at the time because my brain wasn't working right. And that's what happens with a lot of people. And so I'm not embarrassed by it because it's a real thing. You know, I'm not, I'm, I, I don't think it's stupid because it's a real thing. Like I survived it, but a lot of people don't survive this, even as trivial as it may seem to other people, it kills people. And I, I am, it doesn't, it's not lost on me when I read it and think of how silly it is it's not lost on me that it is real and I survived it, you know, and that's scary to me. Well, I think at least part of the thing about, you know, romanticizing the idea of love and being in, a, in, in that relationship is that that feels like a quick fix. Yeah. It feels like if I can just, if I can just this thing, you know, and people who are unhappy, who are clinically depressed and married will then look at if I could just have a kid or just get a dog or just yeah. get that perfect house plan or whatever, you know, because you look for that quick and I'm like, it's, that's coping. That's, that's your yeah. brain casting about desperately for here is an identifiable solution and your brain can't necessarily recognize that it's not the right solution. It's just one, it's a solution and I'm going to work toward it. Yeah. And, and prioritize it and it it becomes one of those like you talk about sort of cliche concepts but that the harder you try to get that relationship the less likely you are to succeed in getting that relationship yeah well because because even if you do end up in the relationship it's not it doesn't hit the doesn't scratch the itch of what you were trying to get because you just made this quick fix thing 
you tricked yourself into believing that it would fix things. And that's not at all what it was. So once you're in it, it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't fulfill the need that you have because you were just going for, it's just like drug abuse and alcohol abuse, you know? Um, it's the exact same thing. It's you're, you think it's gonna, it's gonna fix what you need and it doesn't, um, it's artificial. And so, and that's exactly what it, what it was then. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how, how that changes other than, you know, knowing the, like, is again, cliche as it is, like, I'm not saying you have to love yourself, but you have to, you have to understand like what really is important, what you got to know what you really are looking for. You know, you're not look the guy in the book's not looking for that girl. He's looking for some fulfillment, you know? And for me, that's always, for me, fulfillment has always been about reaching my potential. That's just so hard. You know, everything else is easier than that for me. So I felt like I had, like, if I had just chased those other things, I could get a little, a little hit, you know, of that fulfillment. Um, I don't need the the big full hit of it. I'll just take a bunch of little hits here and there. And just that's, have your that, little bump of speed in the morning and then keep going. Exactly. Yeah. And it just doesn't work that way because but, I mean, you know, the real thing. Yeah. You're bringing yourself to those those relationships and so if yourself is fundamentally hurting yeah then you're still going to be fundamentally hurting you're just putting a band-aid on top maybe yeah and and that that's i mean again there's there's a divergent path that you know that my father took because he had a second divorce um about a year and a half before hmm. his suicide and I very in his case now now he's pushing 60 and he really convinced himself like this is it you know that I I need to be in a relationship I'm at my best in a relationship whereas the rest of us are standing around going look you haven't ever been in a healthy relationship in your life like ever once ever you know my parents not good and my father and my stepmother were different not good yeah you know and so being in a relationship isn't all that great, you know, yeah. g- g- without getting the rest of your shit together. And yeah. I think he reached a point where he decided that the whole world was stacked against him and, and everything seemed like it was just too much and it was too hard. And, and I think that, that, you know, that we used to ask doing crisis evaluations, do you have hope about anything? Is there anything that you're looking forward to? And so my dad lived with us at the time that he died. He was living, actually, you know, he ended up bumping my 15-year-old into his then five-year-old. He's, he's, you know, bumping my boys who, who ended up being eight and 13 at the time into the same bedroom you know both kind of needed their own space but yeah neither of them wanted to be bunk mates with grandpa so that's how that worked and i think he you know he really kind of hit rock bottom in a lot of ways and was starting on an upward trajectory but that was almost harder for him yeah you know yeah and you know feel that way well i um i mean if you had asked me when i wrote this book i probably would have said 
yeah, it, it, it was hard for me. Cause like I said, the hardest thing for me to do in my life is, I mean, I don't even know if it's possible for me to achieve. And I, I mean, it sounds, it sounds arrogant if I say achieve my potential, but for me, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a stop for me. Like, cause every time I've achieved something great, I've immediately felt like, oh, well now I got to achieve something greater, you know? So I, I, and this is all by my standards. So, you know, like I say in the book, I don't, I don't, I wrote a book that I, I think I would like reading. I, I think my book's great by my standard. So um, that, whenever I say I do something great, it's just by my standards. I'm not like cocky in thinking that I'm the greatest person in the world. Um, I just go by my standards. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I mean, even when I feel good about something, it kind of like still keeps me down because I feel like I, I need to keep going, you know? And so back then when I wrote the book, there were good things happening for me. I mean, I got out of my small town that I bitch about in the book and the guy in the book is still like bitching. Like you made it, man. You made it out of this town. You never thought you were going to get out of. And I mean, at that time, um, I moved to New York to work in media, which was like a huge dream of mine. And um, I I was in this city that I dreamed of being in, you know, I, I was achieving things, but I still didn't really see it that way. You know, um, although, you know, for the longest time I would tell people that this book isn't hopeful, but I've come to realize that it is because it's so, I don't know. It's kind of confusing to me because like the guy in the book, me in the book, is does not seem hopeful at all but he's still going you know like he's made it clear that he doesn't want to kill himself and he has hope that he's gonna that things are gonna work out with this girl even though he's told these stories when things didn't work out with the girl so he's very well aware that things don't often like more often than not things don't work out with the girl yet he still has hope that it's gonna work out with this girl you know, and he seems to have hope for his future, even though he's simultaneously could be killing himself, you know, could kill himself. Um, so I don't know what that means. Like, is he hopeful or or is he not hopeful because he's actually killing him, like potentially killing himself, you know? Well, that's I, I often wonder, you know, like I said, with, with my father, I know that he he left home with round trip tickets so he plans to come home um he also had plans for later in the year you know things he was looking forward to doing um he had you know when he when he moved in here he was really flat broke unemployed newly divorced you know kind of everything sucked and over the course of that year and a half that he lived here he got on disability he was on wait lists for Section 8 housing, you know, and so those yeah. sorts of things were looking better. He got a settlement out of the divorce that was in his favor. And so suddenly he was able to travel more. And so, like, there were those positives there. And because if I really, you know, I was pretty, I had pretty frank discussions with my father about his safety because I was big on you cannot move into my house. Yeah. If I think that one of my kids is going to go try to wake you up for dinner 
and find you dead. Yeah. And so I don't think he left the house with that in mind. Um, But I think also, you know, hope to me is one of the most terrifying emotions for people. If you've been hurt a lot, especially if you've fallen down a lot that because if you've fallen down a lot, you know that it hurts to land. And so if you stay down, you can't fall very far. But if you get back up again, you're risking getting hurt again. And I think that that's where my dad was at. Yeah. No, and that's definitely where I was at too. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I was, I, I think that, and you know, I was 28 when I wrote this or when I started writing it and, and my, my life had kind of just started, you know, I had just finished college um, and, you know, come to New York with this dream job and, um, and, you know, where I've always wanted to live. And so I think I, you know, that's, I'm sure the, a big difference between me and where your dad was, you know? Um, yeah, I think I, fortunately, I guess, you know, not that I was thinking this way then, but fortunately, subconsciously, I guess I knew enough that I still had a lot to live for. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's honestly like, like stupid to say because you know your dad had a lot to live for too um but he had a lot more experience being down than i did just based on age i'm sure you know based on life experience and and in the book you know that in that period of my life i felt like i had more than my share of being down but isn't that how anybody and everybody feels once they're at that point you know well, that's, you know, that's the thing, whether or not my dad had a lot to live for, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Objectively, you know, what, what matters is whether he knew it. Exactly. You, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, I talked to you about the disclaimer that's at the beginning of each of my episodes and how I like to shake it up. I like to have different voices at the beginning, mm-hmm. but for the first I uh, 40 or 50 episodes of my show, the voice of the disclaimer is my dad. Wow. Telling people call lifeline and you matter. Yeah. And, you know, and that was, that was always the, the complexity of it is that he could say that and mean it, but couldn't say it back to himself and couldn't hear yeah. it. And, and that, that concept of hope is just, it's, it's fraught. Like I struggle with hope. You know, I have, yeah. I have, clinical depression myself although i can't take antidepressants anymore because i have epilepsy so Mm. antidepressants can trigger seizures and and have for me so i mostly just sort of accept a certain baseline and i i check in a little more aggressively with my own mental health and and my own safety in that sense but the concept of hope is is at times terrifying it's like it's scarier than hopelessness because hopelessness you just feel like look i'm already on the floor i'm just gonna stay here yeah i can't fall any farther but when things start to go well and they start to pick up momentum there's a moment before you ride the momentum where some people stop and look down and they realize oh shit yeah no i i definitely (laughs) i definitely view my my um I guess 
strategy or philosophy as incorporating a little bit of um, being delusional, you know, and in thinking that, you know, because like, like I said, with, with my band, you know, I was, it's makes no sense that my band was able to tour the country three times because we come from this little small town. We would have to drive two and a half hours to play in the closest thing to an actual music scene back then, you know? Um, and we were in Texas, we would have to drive seven, eight hours to Dallas to play four hours to Houston. Like it was very hard for us to achieve what we achieved. And, and so I say, you know, I, I say delusional and that's not like false humility because the things I want to achieve are ridiculous. You know, like I want to turn this book into a TV show and I want to win an Emmy with that TV show. I want to put this audio book out and it's going to have all the music in it. And I want to win a Grammy with that. You know, I, I want to make film like huge movies, you know, and these are all things that I should not be able to do because I'm already 38. I've never made a movie. I've never even made a short film. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I work in video production and I, you know, have produced a lot of, you know, documentary style stuff and branded content and commercials and stuff. So I'm not completely, you know, delusional there, but uh, I have the, the skills and the resources. Um, but I don't have any money and I don't have any connections. Um, and so like, I, for me, part of my philosophy is, is incorporating a little bit of that ridiculous delusional side of things, because that's what keeps me going, you know? And I think I say it in the book. Um, I'm pretty sure I say it in the book. They're like, if I don't accomplish it, I won't know. Cause I'll have died. You know, if I keep trying to accomplish it, the only way I fail or I, I don't fail because I'm accomplishing other things while I'm doing it and then I die and I don't have to worry about what I didn't accomplish, you know? Um, and so for me, it's not so much hope as just determination, you know? Um, and with determination, I feel like that's never let me down. Whereas like what, the way you were describing hope, hope can let you down and it's scary because sometimes it does. Um, but determination, I feel like, does not let you down because unless you give up, you never know if you you either achieve it or you don't know if you didn't because you died <laughs> trying to, you know. Um, and so I feel like that's that's what it is. It's determination that that's that drives me. It's not hope um, because hope was never enough for me, you know, hope would have, wouldn't have got me anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, hope never did get me anywhere. It's determination that got me anything that I've been able to accomplish. Um, and so that's really, that's, that's my strategy is just going after all these things I want to do. And along the way, I'm accomplishing little things that are f fulfilling to me because they're on the road to that major fulfillment, you know, whereas if I were, chasing fulfillment on a road just that's just hope then i for for me the way i understand hope i i don't think i would be able to to find 
little benchmarks the same way I do with determination. Well, I mean, yeah, I had to, I had to lean into other areas of my life instead of hope after, you know, I, I did hit my own, my own rock bottom was in, in 2010 and it's a whole long story, but I went through a major medical situation, like nine months on home health care mm. medical situation. And I was fine ish, like wicked big visual quotes, fine. But I hung in there through yeah. all of that because I was like, I'm, I'm supposed to be messed up. Like, look at what I'm dealing with. Look at, look at my, my medical chart. Look, you know, you know, I have yeah. a visiting nurse coming to my home and I'm 32 years old. You know, I like, oh, I'm supposed to be messed up right now. And then right at, right before Thanksgiving, they looked at me and said, okay, so um, this is as good as you're going to get. This is as, you know, you don't need us anymore, the healthcare. You don't need the nurse visits. You don't need, like, you can basically, good luck. See ya. Thumbs up. Congratulations on not dying. You know, um, which I actually did a couple of times. It's not pleasant, but, you know, do not recommend. But so that's when I collapsed. That's when, that's when I ended up in a psychiatric hospital you know, on the, on the wrong side, you know, when, without the key, like that's, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I've worked there where I've had the key and that's fine. But when you don't have the key and you just hang, that's, that's yeah. not so great. And, um, and it was that, that feeling of, well, they're telling me this is hopeful. They're telling me this is what hope feels like. And this is awful. This is terrifying. And I don't feel ready to fly solo. And I don't, I I didn't want to put it on my family to keep me safe. Yeah. So I ended up checking myself into a psych unit. And after that, I had to, to, for me, I had to redefine success. And that meant for me changing, downshifting my goals for a little while, you know, to accept that I'd just taken a year away from my career and now I have to rebuild and I have to figure out what that looks like and what direction I'm going to go in and and that kind of thing. And so for me, it was just a sheer stubbornness. It was a, look, I'm going to die by meteor strike. Like that's, (laughs) that's my, my plan that because I keep having these crazy medical situations go on. Yeah. And I seem to still be alive after all of that. So I, I, I'm going to redefine success. And for, for a while, my, my concept was, okay, success will be, being a decent mother and if that's all i can accomplish that's pretty good i'll accept that and and i think i am you know i i feel like i'm doing well with that and so finding the podcast has been one way where i've started to sort of do something for myself again and that feels really weird because now it's a new way of defining success in this whole five years ago you know or 10 years ago at that rock bottom of yours did you even know about podcasts like you didn't know that there's this thing out in the world and i mean there were barely podcasts back then but they are they existed but you didn't know that there's this thing that's gonna bring you joy in your life you know give you purpose in your life and that's that's this crazy thing that like i mean i'm i'm getting goosebumps just talking about it because like when i moved to new york to work at comedy central i got a job as a in digital media production 
when I was a kid, I could not dream of being a digital media producer or a social media manager because those things did not exist, you know? So like as a kid, I might've had all these dreams of what I wanted to be, but the thing that got me to this city that I wanted to be in to work for television and to, you know, the thing I won an Emmy for was this thing that didn't even exist when I was a teenager, you know? So that's, that's, something I talk, I talk about a lot with people is that the thing that might make you fulfilled or find that purpose in life might not even exist right now. So you just got to stay alive to keep finding out what that might be. And, you know, when I started my band when I was 14, I didn't play any instruments. I was a singer like who was I to think I could play in bands for the next seven years and tour the country playing in bands. That's ridiculous to think that, but I did it, you know? And, and then after that, because I didn't play any instruments, I never played in a band again. And I thought my life was over because I wasn't in bands anymore. I was 22 years old. And then I found journalism. Like the things that will make us happy might not even exist right now but they could exist and they might not be something you're even thinking about right now, like your podcast. Right. Like, I, I mean, that's such a hard concept to grasp until it's happened. Um, but I hope people can like grasp it a little bit that if they're dealing with some, if they're struggling right now, feeling that feeling like, you know, especially right now when a lot of people have lost their jobs and stuff, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't produce a video. I wasn't on set as a producer or director till like five years ago. And the first time I did it was for Vice. Like that's a huge company to do it for. And the first time I was sent to produce something on set was for Vice. And so like, it's, you never know what's going to happen or what could be out there that could all of a sudden give you this purpose and give you that fulfillment. You might think it's this one thing it might only like you might think only playing in bands is going to be the, the only thing that could ever make you happy and then 10 more things are going to make you happy after that right it's crazy but you just got to stay alive yeah yeah well and that's that's very much i i always i, I always felt like just i had to bring the horizon in closer and you know because when, when my husband and i he still is he, my husband's a math professor he can't help it he's a planner you yeah. know, he, he likes to have like a five-year plan. And I, <laughs> and I used to, I used to go with that. Like, sure. Okay. We can, we can, we can have five-year plans. And then my life kind of imploded, you know, right at, at the 10-year mark of our marriage is when mm. I ended up so sick and everything fell apart. And you know, when I had brain damage from being in a coma for a week and a half. And so that kind of it changed who I fundamentally changed who I was. And so it kind of felt like starting over in a lot of fundamental ways, although the rest yeah. of the world is like, Oh, look at you. You should be so grateful to be alive. And I'm like, fuck that, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. and so there were days where I couldn't, like, he would ask me, you know, what would you like for dinner tonight? And, you know, at noon, he would tell what would you like for dinner tonight? And I'd be like, I can't think that far ahead. Yeah. And so sometimes you have to bring in the horizon really close sometimes you know forget five years or five months sometimes five minutes is too much yeah. sometimes all you can do is is just take the next breath and 
you know, usually it's, I, I would, I think it out to about a minute. If you can think about a minute out and feel like you can stay safe for that minute. Yeah. Then just keep doing that because, you know, it's that, that idea of like carrying a lantern in the dark, that as long as you carry that lantern and can see 10 feet in front of you, you'll always see 10 feet in front of you. And if you get to the point where you can't be safe for a minute, that's when you pick up the phone and you call 911. And that's what it's for. You know, people will be like, well, but I haven't hurt myself yet. I'm like, that's good. Please don't. Yeah. Please call 911. Please get help. But that it's okay to feel crappy and to have felt crappy yesterday and the day before too. And it's okay to look at somebody and say, I cannot see my way out of this. Yeah. Just keep breathing because it does get better, but it often gets better in ways you couldn't predict. Yeah. And that's magical, magical about brains. Yeah. And I mean, the more that you work on your mental health, the the lower the bar is for how great something has to be to to give you that you know to like like in the book you know I am so lost and my brain is just not working that I I these things that just seem so grand to me are really like these things that are almost killing me that I've made the end all be all of my life, which are really just girls and like this, you know, romantic relationship or whatever. That's that. What is more basic in life than that? Everybody has a breakup. Everybody has a, you know, a relationship or gets us heartbroken once in their life, at least like it's not that big of a deal, except it was to me. Then it was life or death then because that's how my brain made it. And in the same way, a healthier brain might've said, might've seen it as like, uh, you've been through this before. You'll be fine. Move on. But my brain wasn't healthy. I wasn't healthy then. And in the same way, when your brain's healthy, a little thing will make you, will make you as happy as I thought that relationship was going to make me, you know, because you start to understand that that those little things add up and those little things are that one minute that you, if you stay safe for that one minute, you get a little thing, you know, that one minute is a little thing. And so the, the more you work on, on your mental health, the, the, the lower the bar gets for happiness. Like you, you can find happiness eat more easily and that, like that, that should keep you going. I like that. Cause it's true. You know, yeah. it's, it's true that, that, you look for grand gestures and it turns out that, you know, finding the, the, I don't know, the brand of peach rings that you like at the store can be enough. Hopefully. Like that's amazing, but w- <laughs> you have to let it be. Like I've found, I've found shows on, on Amazon prime, like this, this year I've discovered like two shows that had been canceled years ago or like two years ago or something. And they're, I keep telling people they're the best shows I've ever seen. And they were already out there, you know, I just happened to find them now. And so like, it's just something like that, you know, cause I, you know, and I appreciate a certain kind of writing and this show, these shows have that. And like those things, like I, I probably sound ridiculous to some people when I talk about them, because I'm probably talking about them. I'm talking about a TV show the same way I was talking about these girls in the book, 
that were going to change my life and like save me. Like it's, it's so you can find that stuff, you know, in, and I think the healthier your, your, the healthier you get, like the easier it is to, to find joy in things. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vdw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumpacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So when I read Mike's book, it kind of hit me pretty hard and heavy. Just, I mean... Let's look at the parallels, like I talked about, you know, here's a book about a guy who checks himself into a hotel room with alcohol and ADHD medication and anxiety medication and doesn't know whether he's going to wake up at the end of it, doesn't know if he's at the end. Mike, as you may have noticed, comes home. He wakes up the next morning and now he's okay. Like he's amazing, right? He's so smart and interesting and introspective and worth listening to. The book is worth a read. Trust me on this. But my dad didn't come home. He didn't wake up the next morning. In his journal, he writes, wrote about how Maybe he would just wake up with a really bad headache and feel like he'd failed at another thing. Or maybe he wouldn't wake up and my dad couldn't care anymore and nothing else was enough. So just understand how much that loss still hurts and and still looms in my everyday life and in my sister's lives, even though they literally barely ever spoke to my father and in his siblings' lives, even though they hadn't done a damn thing in years. And 
in my friends' lives because they know I'm hurting. It's ripples in a pond. You throw a pebble in the pond and it ripples out. And, and there are so many people that are impacted by this one single man's death. And it hurts more because he chose to die. And he chose to leave and couldn't find anything that was enough. Determination or hope or just sheer stubbornness. So please find something that makes it okay. Pay attention to your family, even if it's only on Zoom calls. Pay attention to your pets. Go buy a houseplant. Something. It doesn't have to be deep and profound. Just keep breathing until it gets better. Please reach out if you can't find that on your own because you matter you really really do Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.